This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I have the opportunity to engage with a 40-year veteran of Walt Disney Imagineering, the lead designer of Disney's Animal Kingdom, Expedition Everest, as well as being the creator of the Land of Pandora. After retiring from Disney, he took a new position as experienced architect with Virgin Galactic. He shares with us the love for world travel and wanderlust, the power of details for creating a sense of place, plus the importance of a crooked palm tree. Coming up, a man whose entire career has been a creative adventure, Joe Rohde. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Great to have you, Joe. Boy, I can't believe we stopped you long enough to talk. I know. I, I'm theoretically retired, but I'm kind of an extremely active retirement. I bet, but it also just sounds like your life has been a wild thrill ride of its own. It has been. It was very, very active and uh, not only within Disney, but I mean, I did a lot of stuff for a long time. COVID has had a weird impact on that, this sort of oddly slow period. How in that slow period did it activate other parts of your imagination or offer some extraordinary creativity? That's a really interesting question because I do think a lot of creative people have creative activity threshold that you have to maintain. Like I have to be doing this much. And if I'm not doing it at work, then I got to do it somewhere. So for example, I wrote a book, which I am now going to try to get published. I think I'm going to have to go through one more rewrite in order to get that done. Started working on a series of screenplay ideas that had been simmering for a while. I've been on Instagram for almost a decade now, and I started using Instagram a little bit differently, almost more like a blog. And that became a whole thing. My boys and I produced that Roadies Less Traveled little mini series. I don't know if you saw that. Nice. No, I will. I will look it up and encourage others. That sounds really fun. This is a, a strange little thing. Both of my boys who are men had both come home uh, because of COVID because either their jobs went away or they're like, I'm not staying in New York City for this. And so we were all back at the house. And that house, because of the years that we had lived in it and because of all the travel, was very much like a set piece at Disney's Animal Kingdom or the Adventurers Club. And so we realized I could go into my own backyard and I could sit there next to that giant carved statue from Java and it would look like I was at Animal Kingdom. And then we could talk about these Animal Kingdom design things and we do this little mini series. And so it's out there on YouTube, The Roadies Less Traveled. I think it's five episodes we produced. Oh, that sounds very interesting and intimate. And at the same time, it's very interesting when you discover that coming home to your world is a world that everybody else would like to learn about. I mean, just the audience can't see into your room now, but I see your library behind you and a sculpture. And I think, man, I'd love to see the titles of those books. Like this guy is as well read. So let me just 
step back to the book you're writing. Can you tell us what that's about or what the title is, or do you prefer to keep that a big mystery? I mounted an expedition some years ago to Mongolia to do a series of paintings in the field to raise money and awareness for snow leopard conservation. I started out sort of writing a book about the expedition. But as I was writing it, it became clear to me that the logistics and the philosophy and the actions involved in exploration of an unknown area, in mounting an expedition into a place where you don't know exactly what's going to happen, are weirdly similar to creative project issues. And so this book kind of fuses those two ideas. What makes you one of our most interesting guests is that you started a sentence with, I mounted an expedition, which I think is awesome because you have done that in many, many times in your life. I would say that I would look at you as a multi-sensory storyteller. Oh, yes. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that makes a huge difference in how you think of storytelling. What kind of impact does that have on you taking the guest to become the protagonist in an unwritten adventure that you walk into with them on an expedition? The first thing you always have to bear in mind when you're creating an immersive experiential adventure is that the core of the experience may not reside in visual components. Most of us who are artists and most of us who enter the world of entertainment, the gateway experiences are usually film, theater, and so you can create this bias that the work is visual, but the work is not visual. It is truly experiential. There are parts of the world where the essential quality of being there is not visual. And there are parts of the world where if you use visual cues to try to convince people that they are there, you are not creating the experience. That's not the experience. The experience is sound. The experience is heat. The experience is a spatial experience. It's a tactile experience. The experience has something to do with the time it takes to do something between A and B. Some other thing that isn't visual. And you almost never know that until you get there and walk around and be in the place. I cannot tell you the number of times I have taken people to parts of the world, and I insist on my teams doing a lot of preliminary research. And we still hit the ground and are like, oh, oh, this is nothing like I thought it was going to be. Yeah, those other senses, they're tremendously powerful. For example, smell. I know that I'm a big nostalgia nut. When I smell a package of crayons, it takes me right back to a coloring book when I was a kid. When you're on an airplane and they're giving out hot chocolate chip cookies, if you don't get one and you smell chocolate chip cookies, you're pouting. And and similarly, in my stand-up career, I explored sound a lot by actually bringing the toy on stage, the clackers that make a certain sound at a certain pace. And I can tell you, watching the audience respond to the sound is why the journey even went to, they, they took them places. I lost mine. I got hit by those. Mine are hanging on a power line somewhere. I can imagine that the more you explore those things, even in these worlds like Epcot, where the food is meant to be an authentic experience, it can be very powerful. So maybe share with me a little bit about the importance of keeping authenticity central to the design of an experience. 
Yeah, this is another one of these themes that the word gets used in ways without everybody backing up and going, what do you mean when you say that word? Mm. Authenticity. The environments that I created for the Walt Disney Company, they are artificial. They were built by us. The same way Pirates of the Caribbean was built, the same way the castle at Disneyland was built. They are built by us. They are fictional. They are created. They are designed. So what exactly is the authenticity Mm. then? It's not like you're in Africa. You're not in Africa. Neither are you in a replica of Africa, because there are a thousand things about Africa that cannot be replicated. You are in a story about Africa. And that story needs to be consistent within its own value system. Its authenticity comes from its cohesion, its sincerity, its lack of internal contradiction so that you feel that it is real because it itself possesses holistic qualities that hold it together when you are in it. That is the kind of authenticity. So in my case, most of the stories we told were not fantasies. They were pseudo-documentaries. They're about real things, and they're about real places. And so they needed to have a resonance as if they were real. And that led us to a whole philosophy of detail, the type of detail, the way you see detail. That's what people mean when they talk about this authenticity thing. Yeah, and I think that's what I meant when I asked, was your attention to detail so extraordinary? I do like your description of it being in a story because I would then sense that each time you go through a gateway into a new world, you're entering a new chapter of that book and you're now moving from a Western world to a space world to a fantasy world. That's, I think, what's so exciting about turning the page after waiting in a long line somewhere is that you're going to hit something new and exciting. On this issue of detail is interesting because story has a kind of magic boundary around it. And in a theme park, we all understand the outer boundary is the berm. And when I get inside of a land, the land itself has some kind of visual, the outer edge of that land. When I get inside the ride, the scene has an outer edge to the scene. But people don't spend as much time thinking about the inner edge. It's one thing to look up and out. Mm-hmm. And understand, okay, I'm in a place, I believe that place is believable. But the kind of place we design also allows you to look down and in, mm-hmm. to look at the texture on a piece of wood, to look at a piece of paper, to look at the cracks on a coffee cup. And so if those do not correspond, you have no berm and you're looking out of the world again. And so you're trying to package people inside two forms of containment. One is, I'm going to call it architectural landscape containment, which is the berm. The other is detail containment, that the details reinforce the impression you thought you had when you looked up and out, that you are where you are. When one falsehood, when employee walks by without their costume, the head of their costume on, where you go, oh no, a beheaded Mickey Mouse, that would ruin the thing for a kid. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, uh, my father was a cinematographer, and so I spent my childhood on movie sets and television sets, 
it happened by coincidence that these also were the types of sets that as a young boy you would want to be on. All those Irwin Allen science fiction TV shows from the 60s. My dad worked on the original Planet of the Apes movie. Um, he worked on Batman. So it was all either that and Westerns. And so all of it was very, it was very interesting as a visual education for a young person. But also I got to watch them make movies and watch how fragile these moments are. An actor does a thing, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we have to shoot it over again because that tree moved in the background. Oh, we have to shoot it over again. Why did you touch your nose? You Don't touch your nose when you say that. Oh, there's the mic. Mike's shadow is falling inside. There's like 50 reasons to shoot it over again because inside of a story, absolutely everything has meaning and nothing has no meaning. So you can't have stuff in there that you shrug off. You won't shrug. If an actor coughs in the first act, they're going to die in the third act. You know, nobody coughs for nothing <laughs> in a movie. <laughs> but it seems like that entree to you, seeing your dad, what I would call a world building situation because they're creating the world of that movie. And also what you're talking about is the highest level of understanding how everything matters. That was coming not through osmosis, but in really in present time, you were making judgments about the value of those things. So earlier when you referred to how much research and pre-production you want to do with your team, you know how much it'll fall apart if they don't do that work. Yes. Do you enjoy more the exploration of going to that place. I, I guess the power of wanderlust is what, what I sense about you, is that you like to go be immersed first. You're talking about two different things. There is work and there is, call it whatever you want to call it, pleasure. As an explorer, a personal person who wants to go places, as an explorer, I am powerfully motivated I would say visual phenomena of a place that make me powerfully desire to go there. And sometimes this takes many, many years to achieve, and sometimes it's it's quite immediate. And it falls in a whole category of distant, exotic, inexplicable things that I really want to go be at. For work, you cannot afford the luxury of open-ended exploration. That's what all the books are about. So take, for example, Expedition Everest, the set in the Himalayas. Well, the Himalayas are hundreds of miles long and go through several different countries. People spend their entire lives from their teenage years until they can't walk anymore exploring the Himalayas. We don't have that time. So we have to know why are we going to the Himalayas and therefore what part of the Himalayas are we going to? And what are we looking for in that part of the Himalayas? Or we could never put together a research trip. And so it's different from, I want to simply go to the Himalayas because I've always wanted to go my entire life and I want to be in them and see what is there. That's me. For work, it's much more targeted. And it's part of what the pre-research reading is about, is we have a very limited time to be in this place. I cannot have you land in Cambodia, and be the person in my group who's talking to our guide and pointing to a statue and saying, is that a Buddha? 
It's way too late for that. <laughs> right, right. You're supposed to know that. And you're supposed to know, oh, in fact, that's a Maitreya Buddha. And that's because of blah, blah, blah. Or no, that's not a Buddha at all. That's Hinduism. Because look at this and that and look at these details. Because you don't have time. Yeah. So that's a different energy. It's a very, very exhausting, high energy. These trips are extremely high energy, exhausting events. And I know that you were involved in in designing that ride, Expedition Everest. Have you summited Everest yourself? No, I'm not really a mountaineer. I will go as high as I need to go for primarily cultural experiences. And that's pretty high. I mean, I've been over passes in the Himalayas that are 17,500 feet. That's plenty high. <laughs> They're not much higher than that, that I need to go see. I'm a 14er. My brother did a lot of 14,000 foot things. He took me up once and I thought, this is unbelievable. This is an amazing view. And he asked me another time, I go, I already saw from that height. I'm a cheese weenie when it comes to mountaineering, but he loves it and he will, he'll go wherever he can. As I said, I'm very motivated by the desire to encounter things that are new, strange, inexplicable, but mainly probably cultural, natural. So there are lots of physically challenging circumstances that I would not naturally choose to do, but I would do if you told me, oh yeah, on the other side of this canyon, I mean, I've literally done this, right? On the other side of this canyon is this abandoned Tibetan nunnery with a giant golden statue in it and all kinds of weird old rotting murals on the walls, but we have to cross that river. So, okay, let's go do that. And then that turns into a whole very physical adventure because there's a thing. But that's kind of how I'm wired. What I'm hearing is Joe Rohde is easy to do things if there's a prize on the other side. Kind of, yeah. Well, where is the place that you want to visit that has eluded you so far? One of the places I'd really like to go is Ethiopia. And Ethiopia falls in and out of stability. And so there'll be this period of like, oh, oh, now would be a time I could go to Ethiopia. And then some other thing happens. Like, well, I'm not going to go now. For many, many years when I was very young, I really, really wanted to go to Afghanistan. But I think almost everything about why I wanted to go to Afghanistan is gone. So there are places in the world I would love to go, but circumstances prevent me from going to them. I, and I have very little experience of South America. I've been to Peru. I've been to Colombia. That's about it. So there are huge areas of South America I would love to visit that I have not been, I've not been deep into the Amazon. I haven't been to Chile and all of that. I haven't been very much in the South Pacific. There's a remote, mysterious island in Micronesia that I really want to go to. It's called Pompeii, and it has the ruins of a whole stone city on it. I mean, haven't been there. Haven't been to Sweden. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I mean, I haven't been to Sweden either, but that seems commonplace for you. Well, exactly. Yeah. They're all kind of like normal places. Like my ancestors come from Portugal. I haven't been to Portugal. Oh, gracious. Okay. Well, look, you've got a long time to live now because you've, you've got a wish list. Oh, yeah. Let me just step back for a moment. I know that you've retired from Imagineering, but the title to be an Imagineer is something that is such a great creative, just the idea that your job is in your imagination and that you're 
able to bring it to life with your peers in a creative way. I guess I wonder what are the qualities that make a good Imagineer for somebody who might be thinking about a profession in creativity? Well, the very first thing I think people have to get used to, to be an Imagineer, and it's sort of implicit in the word, is working in an ensemble. Again, this ends up being this sort of conceptual problem for people because so much of our art training is built around the idea of the auteur, the lone artistic genius who has some kind of vision, even the moral obligation for this lone artist to remain true to their singular vision. None of that is relevant to what it means to be an Imagineer, which is to work in a group on a product that is distinctly aimed at winning the hearts and minds of another whole group of people who you may never meet. So the entire thing is built around highly empathetic, humanistic relationship building. You first have to build a relationship to get the job done. And then the only reason the job exists is another relationship with a bunch of other people. So the first most important thing you need to learn if you ever expect to do this kind of work is that it is not about you almost at all. Yeah, even the word Imagineer implies a team. It's creative dream team. Imagination and engineering, these are theoretically two very, very different people coming together to accomplish something, even though many times they may be blended into one. But these types of projects cannot be done alone. They cannot be done by a single person. They are done by groups of people. And way before any other skill, You've got to have this skill of being able to work in a group and to understand for real what that means about some idea you might have in your head and what's going to happen to that idea from the morning it entered your head to the day it gets finally done. You have to be prepared for the degree of negotiation, alteration, change, evolution of that idea, or you're just going to make yourself really sad. It's a takes a village mentality, which you're co-parenting an idea in hopes that it grows up to be more powerful than all the people who are involved in creating it. Yeah. I cannot tell you the number of times as a director of these kinds of efforts, a director, in theory, I'm the person who gets to tell everybody what to do. But of course, that's not exactly what you want to do. The number of times I have seen work get done that was fantastically better than it would have been if people had simply done what I would have said to do at the beginning of the project. It really takes an open-mindedness, an open-heartedness, and a willingness to listen to all. You still have to be able to make decisions from it. But the fact is, is if you hold at bay your best idea to negate everything else, there's a door closed there that doesn't allow you to get to the real work. And you have to learn how to express direction as motivation instead of goal. It's the invitation for them to collaborate with you as opposed to please you and say what you want to hear. Right. Again, because the projects are so big, a single person in such a project becomes a terrible bottleneck of decision-making. It's extremely difficult to maintain that bottleneck, and it breaks down in a number of ways. It'll either break down from literally the failure to keep up with the amount of information 
just that. You lose control of the information. And now there's people out there just making decisions. Who knows what those decisions are? And the project falls apart. Scenario one. Scenario two, everybody recognizes that the single point is not working. And in an attempt to solve that problem, they create more points. So now the project becomes four different projects of various people competing for order. That's another scenario. Another scenario is you are able to maintain this single point, but it is fantastically tyrannical and it sucks the emotional energy out of the project. And so it turns into a work to task project where people just put in their hours, plug in their stuff, do what they need to do so they can get out of there as quick as they can because they're not contributing anything because they haven't been asked. And so they're not really present. And so there's massive amounts of lost opportunity. So there's all these ways a project can go south on the basis of this notion of this single point of approval. It's not a healthy way to run projects like this. That is the weakest kind of creative leadership where a person thinks, I'm going to be in charge, I'm going to make all the decisions. And they do have a tendency to squelch anything that would be birthed in that situation. And it usually it springs from insecurity, but the person's not willing to admit that. And that's what I've seen in television and movie sets where they go, no, I want it to be this color. And then they don't like it when they've made the decision. So they grind down on the art department and say, overnight, change it to a, a baby yellow because I can't take it. And everybody just is doing it in a disgruntled way. They'll do it because they can physically pull it off, but nobody's happy. That's really awkward. There's that. And there's also this problem that creative people are trained in a tradition of the auteur genius. And so they actually believe that there is some moral prerogative they have to hold to this singular vision thing. But when you work in an ensemble, essentially what you have to do is deconstruct your own motivations, turn them into something that can be stated publicly so that the group becomes a kind of shared brain. It's not that your intentions are no longer being met. It's that in order for them to be met, you have to be able to articulate them out of your mouth as intentions, not direction. And you have to be able to articulate a standard of judgment by which anybody else would recognize, oh yeah, I see that. I could see how that would be that. Like Animal Kingdom, let's just say. So we're going to do this park about animals. Animals could be anything, anything. That does not help you. There's all kinds of animals. An ant is an animal. So what is this thing really about? So let's just take the idea of animals and deconstruct animals to get a value set that could turn into a chair, not an animal. So among the value set that comes up, there's several of them, but one of them is this notion of the unchangeable, untradeable power of nature. The idea of nature as a supreme, untradeable, unchangeable power. Because if we're going to have these animals... They are going to behave naturally, and they are going to live natural lives. And there's nothing we can do about that. They're animals. So if we set up a frame for those animals that is not based on their nature, they are going to look like a contradiction in the story. That's a failure of design. Therefore, the entire design has to be based on the nature of animals. Okay. So in such a case, you can write down, okay, the 
unchangeable, untradeable value of nature. That's a value set. How would I recognize that? So then it becomes a series of pro-con, like, okay, if I'm going to be in a place about the intrinsic immutable value of nature, is it more likely to be dominated by architecture or dominated by landscape? It's probably landscape. Is that landscape formal or informal? It's probably informal. If there's a tree in that landscape, is the trunk of that tree more likely to be straight or wiggly? I'll bet it's wiggly. On and on and on and on and on and on you go. But you never told anybody, I want that tree. You're telling them, if there is a tree, use your brain for a second. Imagine what we're trying to say and how we recognize what we're trying to say. What does that tell you about a tree? And indeed, I had my project manager, who has no creative responsibility, come to me one morning and go, there are 40 trees in the parking lot right now, and they all have perfectly straight cafe-style trunks. I don't think you want those trees <laughs> because nothing that you have ever said would make me think you want those trees. That's how you want it to work where your project manager, whose real job is, you know, cost and efficiency and production and construction, can walk out in a parking lot and go, that's not right. I can tell that's not right. Then you have autonomous decision-making within the structure of the team. People have freedom to make decisions, but the motive and standard of judgment is shared by everybody. Yeah, well, that's great. While you were describing that, I was thinking about how Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, his philosophy on organic architecture that he would talk to his students is that he believed in designing uh, in harmony with humanity and environment. So there was sort of a seamless sense between where the structure was and how it fit in there. Uh, obviously, what you're saying is that your team could understand so well that they could actually make a better decision with even without you being there, you know, get to the top of the mountain. Yeah, over and over again. That's absolutely true. You're describing what an expedition team member needs to know for survival. Everybody has to know what are the assets? What do we have? Well, this person we have knows this kind of stuff. We'll rely on them to make the fire. This person knows how to catch a fish. If you rely on the team in all of its best qualities. And if you stop and listen to the quietest one, the observer who sees the problem in a different way than the talker does, oftentimes the best solution will come out of that. Again, you mentioned an expedition. It's a really interesting metaphor, right? So imagine we're gonna make this up. I wanna go harvest pearls. There's pearls in Japan. I'm gonna sail my boat from Los Angeles to Japan. Okay, so I get on this boat and the captain of the boat says, start sailing. I'll tell you if I like where we're going or not. And off you go into the ocean with only so much water, only so much food, only so much fuel, because projects are just like that. Only so much money, only so much time, only so many people. Sailing along, sailing along. Captain is like, oh, I don't like this. It's too hot. Oh, no. Oh, this can't be right. I see narwhals. We must be too far north. You're never getting to Japan. You're never getting the pearls. You're never getting there. You're going to run out of fuel and water and food in the middle of the ocean somewhere. You're on your way directly to the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. Or, or same boat. We're going to go to Japan to get pearls. You set out, you set your course for Japan, which you know where that is. It's over there. 
So off we go. And midway through the Atlantic Ocean, we encounter a gigantic storm. And it's like, you know what? We're never getting to Japan. However, there are pearls in Tahiti. So we're going to Tahiti now. Change course. Yeah. You can't do that if you don't know why you are sailing in the first place. Right. Setting a goal. Setting a goal that, uh, which is a dream with a deadline. Yeah. It's a motive. I need pearls. So I'm going to Japan. So this is the difference. Is not we're going to Japan. It's we're going to Japan to get pearls. And if we can't get to Japan, we're going to go to Tahiti. Big difference. You've been involved in many projects that venture into this sort of transformational power of adventure. That seems to be kind of the MO where you're taking people to other worlds or they're coming to a world you've created, which I which is what's so interesting about the word attraction, that these theme parks are creating attractions so that people come to them. Many of them, we've already discussed a few of them, but you've also had the responsibility of re refurbishing lands like Fantasyland at Disneyland. How much responsibility do you feel at that moment? I don't know how long you had been into your career, but you know what I mean? What kind of respect are you holding that might restrict you at that moment from seeing it in a new way? Well, there's a couple. I mean, I was very young when I was working on the Fantasyland project, but I was around for the discussion. And in that particular case, that was the Fantasyland at Disneyland. And that was conceptualized in terms of an upgrade. Like we want to take our present capability, which is greater than our past capability, and increase our ability to amplify this story. We can do better architecture now, better special effects. We can do better set work now. And so we're going to do that. We're going to amplify the same story intent, because there was no change in the story intent. It was an amplification by increasing the expressive quality of architecture and by, I would say, upgrading the expressive quality of the interior set design. And that's kind of how we all worked. How can I get this to be more of what it already is, as opposed to distinct from what it is? With the Guardian's transformation of tower, completely different mission. We want to take something and substantially change the way you think about it so that it is equally successful, but completely different, while it, in fact, cannot be very different at all. There seems to be conversions to some of these rides, uh, Jungle Cruise, the Treehouse, where a more contemporary movie or some property comes along and it lends itself to a conversion to maintain the attraction. Some of that has to do with the aging of primary ideas. Some of our early ideas about adventure are loaded with all kinds of ethnocentric presumptions that don't resonate. So you got to go through and go, how can I still have adventure and not touch upon these themes that they don't resonate anymore? Sometimes I think there is a very different motive of like, look, we have a property. People like this intellectual property and we don't have anywhere to put it, but it is similar to or resonant with that thing. So why don't we put it there? Because they rhyme, they, they resonate, it'll work. I'm personally, I think, you know, you have to be very careful how you leverage intellectual property because 
the reason it works in one medium may not translate to this other medium. A lot of film works on the basis of plot and character. That's why the film works. Interesting character, interesting plot. Well, plot and character are not powerful components of placemaking. They're just not. You can't follow a linear plot in a physical place because there are too many choices that you individually make about where to look, where to travel. You know, you can't manage linearity until you put people on a ride. And even then, you don't exactly know where they're looking. And usually you have like four minutes. And you are dealing with a lot of people in a theme park and a lot of ideas and a lot of even what they're going to do with their time right now. So yeah, as you say, you have to settle them into a ride or into a theater or into a space where you can control many things about what they're doing. Well, and also you have to ask yourself this thing about, okay, so here was a a film or a television show or a book. Something about this was profoundly appealing. That is why it is popular. Something about it works. Number one, what is that thing? Number two, how does that thing translate into a physical environment with an immersive and relatively ambient experience? So that rather than, this is why you tend to not want to replicate the plot in four minutes of what happened in a two-hour movie. That's just worthless. You want to get down to the core of what is it about this that is so appealing? With Guardians, with the conversion of Tower, there's something about the Guardians of the Galaxy as a group of people, as a style of presentation, irreverence, humor, kind of deliberate code-breaking that they do all the time. They, They fight form, they satirize form, they play with the form itself. It is irreverent. That's more important than following some plot line from some movie that maybe you saw, but maybe you didn't. And then maybe you saw four years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, 14 years ago. The idea is always in decay. The movie certainly is. If you boil this thing down to primal, reliable human factors, those tend to not decay as fast. Grab the essence so that you're living in the perfume of the idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like irreverence itself as a atmosphere. That's not going to get old. No, that's actually a good name for the Guardians of the Galaxy perfume, irreverence. It would be. Yes. Yeah. You retired from 40 years as an Imagineer with Disney, and then you take this position with Virgin Galactic, where you're a strategic advisor to help design and guide the overall experience of a journey for future astronauts into space. This is an extraordinary chapter change for you. I mean, I obviously can't talk very much about what we are doing right now, but in essence, I think what's interesting here is unlike a theme park attraction or any theatrical attraction, this is a living event that goes on and on and on through history. It is part of history. It continues. It will continue to happen. It will continue to grow. It will continue to be part of a bigger picture of space travel altogether. And so there is not an opening day in the same sense that there is, because an opening day in theater means two things. It means 
you're done. And it means that thing is now the thing that it is. This is not that. This is a perpetually evolutionary process. It has to keep up with technology, keep up with science, keep up with society, keep up with a bunch of things. So that that, that part's kind of interesting. The contemplation of the meaning of what it even means to do this, those are interesting things. The details of what that all is going to turn into, that is for the company themselves to discuss and to talk about when they're ready. Isn't it also an individual opening day for the person who makes the choice to go to this other side or this other world and experience something that is completely out of their realm. There's a ultimate quality of adventure to this idea of going into space. I mean, you're leaving the planet to go into space. That's a big deal. So there is that. You don't want to leave that hanging. You want to make sure that that has power and moment and stuff like that. So we're just working on these sorts of things and how this all translates into a uh, built experience. But again, that the what that all turns into will be sometime, I imagine, before it's uh, revealed. Understandably, I had a friend that signed up for a national lottery that had to do with uh, space travel. And she was a mother and a wife and professional. And the lottery went from 1,000 people to 100 people to 20 people. And she was still on it. And she had to have that conversation, which is, before we move forward, are you willing to talk to your family to say, mommy's going to this other place and we don't know what's happening next? I don't know if it was a mission to Mars or whatever. The specifics I can't really remember. But I do remember that it required them all to say, this could be a long mission and we could be gone for a period of your childhood. So that's an interesting dilemma for a family to have that you might only have with a father that's a soldier or a mother that's on some other kind of expedition that where everyone has to say, we agree to support this because it's not just an individual with no relatives. There is a thing most of the astronauts that we've spoken to have talked about that I think is interesting. And it has to do with the difference between space travel as portrayed by Hollywood. Because of the necessities of plot structure in filmmaking, space travel is portrayed as somewhat grim. And the phenomenal happiness and wish fulfillment and joy that these people feel because they get to go to space. That is like, oh yeah, I totally could see that now. Anyway, it's one of those things where, you know, it goes back to that thing of like, what is the experience for real? For real. Not the book experience, not the movie experience, not the, what's the actual experience? Well, according to the people that do it, it is phenomenal, joyful wish fulfillment. I bet. I bet it's transformational change interiorly of what it's like to look back at your earth and get a perspective of, of that distance. That must be a, an unbelievable euphoria. You know, the other thing I've been doing for a year, I've been working with the Explorers Club. Uh, I am in the Explorers Club, mainly because of the work, that the Animal Kingdom kind of work. It's not like I'm, you know, the world's greatest explorer. But the Explorers Club's been doing another one of these things. There's a program we did all last year, Explorers 50. Uh, we're about to release another 50. And it's 50 individuals that we've brought together from around the world who by their presence within the Explorers Club alter the perception 
of exploration and therefore alter the perception of all the explorers in the Explorers Club of what it means to be in the Explorers Club. Right. This is a really interesting form of experience design because it ultimately becomes the experience of yourself, right? Who are you? If this is what it means to be an explorer, who then are you? Really interesting. I got to interview every single one of these people. That's a whole series of interviews that are also out there on YouTube. Some of these people are like Maasai tribal people who live in the context of a Maasai tribal life. Some of them are more what we expect of uh, scientific or uh, biological exploration, but from some part of the world that you're like, wow, how are you even able to do that? And then they meet each other and they interconnect and they form new alliances. And But it's that thing of when we look from the outside, there's all these mythic constructs of what it means to be something, astronaut, explorer, imagineer. And those mythic constructs, that's what they are. They're mythic constructs. The reality of being these people and the reality of doing these things is different. And it tends to be very, very human. Well, they sound like they would be extraordinary conversations to listen to. And as you say, they are available on YouTube. So would they put your name in or is there a... You probably could find it by using my name, Explorers Club or Explorers 50 interview. R-O-H-D-E. Before we depart, I guess I would ask you if there was an early influence, creative book or person or experience that really lit the fire under you to go on the path that you went on. There's several. When I was quite young, we lived in Hawaii and we were friends with another family. The father of that family is a man named Jean Charlot, C-H-A-R-L-O-T. Jean Charlot is the guy who wrote the first serious critical essay of animation as an art form about Snow White, the film Snow White. That essay is available online. You can find this. Anyway, he was living in Hawaii at the time and also responsible for kind of revitalizing the art scene in Hawaii and putting it more in the hands of indigenous value systems and indigenous expression. So I was at his house all the time rattling around with the statues and the paintings. And he also had been one of the field illustrators for one of the first excavations of the ruins of Chichen Itza. So there's Mayan paintings and there's statues and there's Hawaiian cultural objects and there's real art by a real artist who's like a full-on art artist. So the awareness of art, just art as a thing that is real, from a very young age, that's a thing. That's just a thing that you carry with you as you go. And then I imagine uh, many things happen in between, you know, I mean, I easily could have ended up as some kind of delinquent acting out kind of character, you know, <laughs> well, I kind of did. But by the time I got to Disney, to Imagineering, I was there when there still were some of those first generation guys, Herb Ryman in particular. And this very short period of time as Epcot was, you know, in the early 1980s, forming this idea from the exposure to these people like Mark Davis, like Herb Ryman, that this stuff is not just about what you think up in your head. This is about stuff you do. These guys did stuff. They went places. They did stuff. Herb Ryman, like, 
lived at Angkor Wat in the 1930s, which is a ruin. There are no hotels. You know, Mark Davis had so many statues and carvings from Papua New Guinea in his house that you had to like squiggle between them to get to the flat file after flat file after flat file, flat file, flat file, full of drawings of tribal people, tribal artifacts, for real, from going to Papua New Guinea in the early 1960s. Think about that. So you're like, oh, there's a whole thing here. That's where this comes from. And that was very formative as well. And of course, Herbie, for a while, just kind of nurtured me along. I kept trying to paint Herbie Ryman style, you know, when right. I was young. And then after that, of course, it was, you know, you don't get anywhere without people who are your patrons, who are your helpers, who are your advocates, who stand up for you all through the entire process to be able to do anything. Like I said at the beginning, you don't do anything alone in this business. You do it because people are there for you, either above you, around you, people who execute. That's how things get done. And so the only reason I'm here and you're talking to me is because of dozens and dozens of other people who either gave me a chance, who made the idea work, who actually did the work. Well, it also seems to me like you have an insatiable curiosity and you are willing to, you have the discipline to put the pen to paper, to draw, to design, to think, to invite that collaboration with people. And I think that that may be the lesson is find a mentor, find a champion, ask questions, open your mind and open your heart to experiences beyond what you're witnessing on television or hearing on the radio. Go and live a life that reflects the kind of art you want to make. I think you have to engage. You have to engage. And I think a lot of times these people who aspire, they don't understand that you're not going to do this alone. You don't have to do it alone. And if you try to do it alone, it's going to be either impossible or very, very hard. You do this with people. It's a people thing. Engage and something will happen, which literally, by the way, is what the word adventure means in Latin. Something is going to happen. And something happened here today. We had an adventure with Joe Rohde. I had to look for some way to wrap this up because we could go on forever, Joe. You're so fascinating. Thank you for being our guest today. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you very much. What an adventure. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative, under the skilled producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Casey Franco, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's .fun because .com is just too .common. And .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page. Stepping on a ghostlit stage. A circus of uncertainty. Your call to creativity. La, 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 la. La 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 la